Chapter 14 of Cuts by the County, or Grace Darnell, by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Then be we, each and all, forgiven. A week went by, a week of misery for everyone at Darnell Park, and for at least one person outside the gates, a week which had brought no new tidings of any kind. Mr. Penworn had gone back to Scotland Yard a confessed failure, and Dora was scathing in her contempt for the detective force. He had eaten and drunk, he had been handsomely paid for his services, he had gone upon expensive journeys to Liverpool and Plymouth and Cork, but he failed to arrest the footsteps of Jaker or even discover what white wings had wafted Jaker and his fortunes westward. Among the crowd of emigrants for that western paradise, the poacher, a marked man in the neighbourhood of Darnell, had been but an insignificant unit, and he had left no trace behind him in the memory of dock labourers or quayside loiterers. The note changed by Jaker at the village shop had been identified by Sir Alan's bankers as one of the notes issued to him. This fact established Jaker's guilt in the mind of the detective, but it did not satisfy Dora Darnell. From the first, she had made up her mind that her sister-in-law was in some wise implicated in the guilt of that fatal night. She was not going lightly to surrender that belief. It was the fruition of her own evil thoughts, the culmination of her long-cherished dislike of her brother's wife. She was not going to relinquish her own convictions, the outcome of much intense thoughts, merely because the real criminal had been clever enough to pass some of his plunder to Jaker, no doubt with the express intention of putting justice on a false scent. While Miss Darnell clung to her own convictions, Edward Colchester was pursued by the thought of that handsome and gentlemanlike stranger whom the Mowbray girls had seen lurking about Darnell. He took occasion to discuss the subject a second time with Miss Mowbray and her sister, during a chance meeting at somebody else's house, and again he heard of the stranger's shabby clothes and superior air, his anxiety to know who was staying at Darnell, and upon which side of the house Lady Darnell and Miss Darnell's rooms were situated. Did he ask about both? asked Edward, deeply interested. "'Yes, about both, and we were so frightened that we answered him like silly sheep without thinking how improper it all was,' answered Jane. "'Such questions could only be asked by a burglar, could they? And yet he had such a gentlemanly air, and he looked very ill, poor creature,' said Miss Mowbray. "'The whole thing is too mysterious,' said Mrs. Vincent, the lady of the house, who had called upon Dora Darnell that afternoon and whose imagination had been fed with suggestions and innuendos. But then, Lady Darnell is such a very mysterious person.' "'She is a charming woman,' protested Edward, who is not going to sacrifice Lady Darnell to these ladylike harpies.' He had always liked her and believed in her, and he was prepared to stand by her now. It was Grace whom he suspected, Grace who had treated him so badly. Charming, no doubt. She is very handsome and very elegant, and she has a certain style of her own which is very taking, even if it is not good style, replied Mrs. Vincent with a judicial air, but every one must admit that she is mysterious. There is a want of candor, a something underhand. Why should you accuse her of being underhanded, exclaimed Edward? Did she ever tell you a lie? People are not obliged to go about in society advertising their antecedents. Perhaps she was very poor in her first husband's lifetime, and doesn't care to talk about the shifts she was put to. The world is so snobbish that people are ashamed of owning that they were ever hard up. Or the man may have been a scamp, who knows? No one knows anything, said Miss Mowbray, maliciously. Lady Darnell has shown a peculiar talent for holding her tongue. Then she is the most original of women, retorted Edward, and I only wish the rest of her sex were as clever. This was a glaring piece of injustice, since a few minutes ago he had been doing all in his power to make Jane and her sister talk about their encounter with the tramp outside Darnell. But Edward Colchester had not been himself for the last ten days. His heart was gnawed by jealousy, and this gnawing process is apt to have a very bad effect upon a man's temper. A week had gone by since that morning when Claire Darnell had entered her husband's room, full of love and hope, to be received with such crushing coldness. She had not seen him since that hour. She had waited meekly till he should summon her to his bedside. She was ready to bear the punishment of her sin against him, that one sin of concealment, ready to acknowledge that she had erred in withholding her confidence from the husband and friend to whom she owed all her allegiance. During the week that was just ended, Sir Alan had made marked progress toward recovery. A powerful constitution and habits of exceptional temperance had made his restoration to health easy when once the bullet had been successfully extracted. 
He had been gradually regaining strength of body and mind during that week of quiet and seclusion. He had seen his daughter once, his sister three times. Dora had urged her right to see him, and he had yielded to her wish, not without reluctance. She had sat with him for an hour on each occasion, and she had talked softly, in low and gentle accents, yet dropping such drops of venom as those lips of hers were wont to distill when her brother's wife was the subject of conversation. Whatever Sir Alan thought of her insinuations, he had been inscrutable. And now the day had come when he felt himself equal to an interview with his wife, that interview which he felt must needs be final. His house must no longer shelter a traitress, his daughter must no longer call an infamous woman mother. It was to grace his only child, his darling of peaceful days gone by, that he turned in this hour of dark despair. Amidst the shipwreck of his happiness, she was the straw to which he clung, and now, today, when he had to pronounce judgment upon his guilty wife, he summoned grace to stand at his side, to be, in some measure, judge between him and the woman they both had loved. Grace would incline to mercy, grace would pity the sinner, even in the midst of indignation at the sin. It was the first day upon which Sir Alan had been well enough to sit up for an hour or two, he looked the pale ghost of his old self as he sat by the fire, wrapped in a long brocaded dressing-gown, bordered with a sable, as picturesque as the robe of a Venetian senator in the sixteenth century. The gown had been planned and chosen by Lady Jarnall, and made in secret, as a birthday gift for her husband. He remembered that fact when his valet handed him the garment, and would have avoided putting it on, but his only other dressing-gown had been stained with blood on the fatal night. He could not reject the obnoxious robe without too plainly indicating his antipathy, and he did not want to make his wife's disgrace common talk in the household. He sent for his wife and daughter, and they came to him, side by side. Grace flew to the hearth, where he sat in a spacious armchair. She flung herself upon her knees beside him, and nestled her bright head in his lap. "'Oh, father, what delight to be with you,' she murmured. Claire stood a little way off, calm, erect, but very pale. If she stood before him thus as a criminal, conscious of that last worst crime of which a wife can be guilty, she was indeed the most audacious among women. But though her face expressed a proud tranquillity, and her eyes, grave, sorrowful, reproachful even, looked at him unshrinkingly, she was content to stand aloof, as one who knew there was an impassable gulf between herself and him. So Alan Darnell thought in his agony as he looked at the wife he had loved. Had loved, is there ever an end to such a love as this? Did Lucius Junius Brutus cease to love his sons when, as their judge, he condemned them to death? Never had Alan Darnell loved yonder pale, beautiful woman more intensely than he loved her now, in the supreme hour of her renunciation. "'Grace, I have sent for you because I have that to say to Lady Darnell, which I would wish you to hear,' he began gravely. There are some fathers who would keep such a sorrow as mine forever secret from a daughter, who would hush up and gloss over facts, leave all things in darkness and mystery, something to be wondered about forever afterward. But I have chosen to act otherwise. You are a woman, and it can do you no harm to know that there are wicked women in this world as well as good women. I give you my whole confidence, Grace, because you are wise as well as loving.' "'Father,' cried the girl, looking at him with horror, "'what are you going to say? Not one word against my mother.' "'Hush!' exclaimed Sir Alan, putting his hand upon her lips. You must never again call that woman by such a name. You look upon her today, I hope, for the last time. Lady Darnell and I are going to part, Grace, forever. There is no need for me to enter upon the reasons for that parting. She knows what those reasons are as well as I. There need be no public scandal, no disgrace for her, whom we have both loved. Lady Darnell is comfortably provided for under her settlement. She will do well to go abroad, alleging any reason she may please, not dishonorable to me for our separation. I would spare her all the pain I can, although her infamy well nigh cost me my life although her midnight visitor did his best to murder me. "'Father, father!' cried Grace, with a wild shriek of horror. "'You are wrong, deluded, deceived, deceived by me, your wretched daughter. It was in the hope of seeing me that that man came to this house. He had been lurking about all day. He wanted to get an interview with me, to claim my promise, perhaps to ask me for money, since he was brought so low.' "'Grace, what are you raving about? You are mad!' exclaimed Sir Alan, looking from his daughter to his wife in sheer bewilderment. Claire had not said a word. She stood before him silent, imperturbable, waiting to hear his accusation in all its fullness. 
She wanted to hear him to the end, and learn the lowest depth to which she had sunk in his estimation before she uttered one word in her own defense. And now Grace had come to the rescue, Grace the generous and impulsive, and the whole story must needs be told. No, father, dearest, I am not mad, but I have been foolish, blamable, wicked even, for it was wicked to keep the secret of my folly from the best and kindest of fathers. I am deeply ashamed of myself. If that dreadful wound had been fatal, I should have been the most miserable creature in this world. I could not have gone on living, knowing that my folly had been the cause of my father's death. And then briefly, bravely, without disguises or sophistications of any kind, Grace Darnell told the history of her engagement, told how she had seen her scampish lover upon the chicksand common when they were out cup-hunting in the morning, and how she had seen no more of him. "'You did not see him again at night, then?' questioned her father. "'How do you know that it was he whom I saw in the next room, the man who fired the shots? "'I do know it, as well as anyone can know anything from circumstantial evidence, but it's a long story. "'Hark, there is a carriage,' cried Grace, rushing to the window. "'It must be the colonel. I had a letter from him this morning, saying he would try to be back today. "'He knows everything. He can convince you that I am telling the truth.' "'Who knows?' said Sir Alan. "'You trusted him, then, when you dared not trust your father?' "'Because I was not one little bit afraid of him, dear indulgent old thing,' cried Grace. "'May he come upstairs at once? I am dying to see him.' "'Not yet, Grace. We must have this story out first. "'If—if if I have wronged your stepmother as deeply as your words imply. "'You have wronged her, deeply, cruelly, outrageously. "'There was never a more devoted wife. "'I know how she has suffered all through your illness, poor thing, "'and she stands there like a statue accused of crimes which I alone am guilty.' "'Claire,' cried Sir Alan, holding out his arms to his wife, "'trying to rise, but almost too weak to lift himself from the capacious depths of the low armchair.' "'Claire, can you forgive me?' "'Alan, my beloved husband.' She flew to his arms, on her knees with her head upon his breast. She sobbed out the fullness of her heart. "'No, Alan, no,' she gasped when her passionate tears had exhausted themselves. "'No, I am not without guilt. I, too, have been weak and cowardly. Like this poor girl here, I have had my secret. I have kept one bluebeard chamber in my life locked from you, the best and most generous of men. Grace is mistaken. Her unprincipled suitor, the unhappy young man who in Paris called himself Victor de Camelot, came to this house on that dreadful night to see me, to obtain money from me, from me whose purse had been emptied for him, time after time, since my marriage. You must have often wondered what I did with my money, Alan, how I contrived to get rid of that handsome income which your love had settled on me. You know now. It was not spent on private charities, as you fancied. It was not from motives of benevolence that I stinted myself of those luxuries women love. It was my worthless son who drained my purse and squandered your money in gambling clubs and on racecourses. Your son? Yes, my son, Stuart Mackenzie's son, who, God help him, has inherited all Stuart Mackenzie's vices, including the capacity for murder. My son, who may before long be standing in the criminal dock to be tried for the crime of that fatal night, and to bring disgrace upon you through your wretched wife. He is not drowned, as we thought, in the Earl King. He wrote to me from San Francisco within two months of my marriage. He had seen the announcement in an English paper, and he congratulated me on my good fortune and my power to help him. From that time to this, his letters have been one long series of demands— I have complied, weakly, hopelessly, ready to grant anything, rather than to let you know my trouble, rather than that you should feel ashamed of your wife's son. He is mine, you know, my very own, my flesh and blood. No dishonor can touch him that does not cast its shadow upon me. I could not bring myself to confess how low he has fallen. If I had told you anything, I must have told you all. I preferred to keep my secret, and in this one matter to be a hypocrite. Poor Claire, poor misguided Claire, as if I should have failed you, love. Why, I would have stood by you and helped you if you had been the mother of half a dozen scampish sons. Ah, you are so good, but I wanted to spare you all trouble and worry. And so, worried yourself out of health and spirits, all wrong, Claire, said Sir Alan gently. I tried, under these conditions, to do my duty to my wretched boy, tried to be his adviser and guide, to put him in an honourable way of life. I gave him the means of living as a gentleman, the leisure to cultivate the profession of his choice. I refused no request he made me, I lent a willing ear to his promises of amendment. All in vain. He was a drunkard and a gambler, his vices were ingrained in him, a hideous hereditary taint, the leprosy of sin.' 
when he stood before me that night threadbare down at heel haggard degraded i knew that he had fallen to the lowest depth of moral and physical ruin his shaking hands and restless manner told me too plainly that he was a sufferer from his father's old disease the brandy drinker's fatal fever he had so suffered before as i knew he had hardly emerged from boyhood when he was first attacked by that horrible complaint i knew all this but i did not know that he could be mad enough or wicked enough to attempt murder he told me of his courtship of grace admitted that he had passed himself off as a frenchman was daring enough to talk about claiming the fulfilment of her promise directly she came of age he asked me for a large sum of money which i refused and while i was absent from the room he opened the japanese cabinets where you had put the notes he must have seen you from the balcony and was in the act of making off with them when you entered i understand muttered sir alan it was the money then that made him desperate i had forgotten all about that money other people did not forget miss darnell brought a detective from london and he put the whole story together dora brought a detective here and without my permission exclaimed sir alan she brought the police into the house while i was lying unconscious here that was rather a wide stretch of her authority as my sister we were all so anxious about you dearest murmured grace i dare say it was aunt dora's anxiety which made her send for the detective i don't think the whole of scotland yard could have done very much towards saving my life gracie it would have been more sisterly of your aunt to have postponed her inquiries till i was able to sanction them she could not have guessed that the thief was my son and grace's suitor said lady darnell happily for us the man from scotland yard was beguiled by a false scent and my wretched son is still at liberty god only knows where he is and what we may next hear of him nothing bad i hope mother said grace for the colonel has undertaken to look after him and as i had a very cheery letter from the dear old man this morning i have no doubt that he has managed everything admirably would you mind his coming here now father i am dying to hear what he has done yes grace you can send for him now grace went off to deliver her own message and alan darnell and his wife were alone for a little while alone and side by side full of trust in each other just as they had been before the crime which for a little while had wrapped their lives in a black cloud ah claire what a besotted idiot what a ruffian i have been to you said sir alan lifting his wife's hands to his lips what shall i do to atone for my brutality get well and strong as fast as ever you can dearest and let us start upon that delicious journey to the italian lakes and yes there is one other favour i should like to ask you there is nothing you can ask love which i will not grant i think alan when we come back to darnell it would be better for your sister to find a home elsewhere i do not believe that she and i can ever be quite happy and at ease under the same roof for i have an idea that she detests me and upon my honour claire i believe you are right my sister was a very good sister as long as there was no rival to dispute or share her influence but she is fond of power she was proud of her position as mistress of donnell park and she has never honestly forgiven me for marrying again i believe that in a ladylike way she has contrived to prejudice a good many of my old friends against my new wife she shall find another home claire you and i will have nothing but sunshine in our domestic lives you don't mind grace do you grace is devoted to you and i am devoted to grace i shall be very sorry when we are obliged to part with her oh alan while we are still alone tell me that you can forgive the trouble i have brought upon you through my unhappy son poor grace's entanglement that terrible wound which has imperilled this dear life if you had never known me these things would not have happened if i had never known you i should have missed knowing true happiness we must take the sour with the sweet and the thorns with the roses dear love life is made so as for grace she is a fine impulsive creature created to get into mischief of some kind in the flush of youth and folly like a row caught in the thicket and she might have met your scampish son in the louvre all the same had i never met you hardly alan for it was your money that gave him the means of living in paris here comes the colonel said sir alan grace came gaily into the sick-room bringing her indian warrior whose fine benevolent countenance beamed with kindly feeling my dear alan this is a change for the better lady darnell i congratulate you he said as he sunk into the chair which grace wheeled forward to the hearth i was very sorry to leave darnell while you were in such a critical state but i had some particular business in town you can speak before father and mother they know everything about monsieur de camelac i'm very glad of that grace first and foremost then there are your letters said the colonel handing her a sealed packet 
You can count them by and by and see if they are all right. And there is a letter from the young man, whose name is no more Kamalock than it is Stukely. Grace knows his real name now, said Claire. The deuce she does, cried the colonel. It's more than I do, for I believe the fellow has half a dozen aliases. However, Grace knew the man as Kamalock, and as Kamalock he writes to her, renouncing all claim upon her, acknowledging that he was altogether unworthy of her girlish confidence, and that he obtained her promise under false pretenses. The letter was written on board the Orizaba, bound for New Zealand, where I have dispatched our young friend under the care of a doctor who is going to settle in the colony and who will look after Mr. Kamalock and set him on his legs when he gets out there. If there is any capacity for reform in the man, he will have a fair chance of redemption. God grant that he may take advantage of it, exclaimed Clare. Oh, Colonel Stukely, how can I ever be grateful enough to you for this good work? You, said the colonel, looking puzzled. Ah, you do not understand yet. You have not been told all. The service done for Grace is a tenfold boon to me. The man you have tried to rescue is my son, Valentine Stuart Mackenzie. If you have indeed saved him, if he were my son, I could not have done anything better for him. And you have taken all this trouble, you have spent a great deal of money, began Lady Jarnall, but the colonel interrupted her. Don't talk about the money, the whole business has cost very little more than a hundred so far. And that reminds me that I have some money of yours in my pocket-book, Alan, just half of the notes which Lady Jarnall's son took in his mad fit. The other half fell into the clutches of Jaker and his brood, who robbed him while he was under the influence of delirium tremens. Don't be unhappy, Lady Darnell. The fit was over before we put him on board the Orizaba, and my friend the doctor will look after him throughout the voyage. The Orizaba is a sailing vessel. The passage will last long enough for a perfect cure if my friend Farron is as firm as I believe he will be. I put the case in his hands as an interesting experiment. Here is a young man organically sound, good-looking, well-made, well-born, well-bred, given over to the demon drink. I give him into your custody, out of reach of temptation, for the steward and captain will work with you for his welfare. You can have him all to yourself for the next two months. If there is any virtue in your science, you ought to be able to cure him. And Farron declared that he would cure him. Claire gave the colonel her hand. You have brought me comfort and hope, she said fervently. You are a noble-hearted man, Colonel Stukely, worthy to be my husband's friend. You can give me no higher praise than that. Grace had opened the packet and looked over her letters. Yes, they were all there, the poor little schoolgirl notes, written in the most Britannic French, with much recourse to grammar and dictionary. The letters written later from Darnell, in a freer style and a little more Gaelic, but abounding in wrong genders and impossible tenses. She glanced through the collection, blushing as she looked, and then knelt down on the hearthrug and threw them behind the burning logs. What a merry blaze they made! While the flames went roaring up the wide old chimney, she turned to her godfather, half in tears and half in mirthfulness. "'You have done something more for me than teach me my catechism and the Ten Commandments in the vulgar tongue,' she said. "'You have rescued me from a great difficulty.' Perhaps if I had been in the way to teach you the Ten Commandments, laying particular stress upon the Fifth, you might never have got into that difficulty, my poor Gracie. No, if I had honoured my father as I ought to have done, I should never have engaged myself to a French art student without his knowledge, said Gracie, and then, with a touch of pretty rebelliousness, she added, but then he ought never to have sent me to school. That was the beginning of the evil. That was Aunt Dora's doing, said Sir Alan. The school was her advice. I hate people who are always giving advice, exclaimed Grace, a thing that costs nothing and which nobody wants. How happy they were, sitting round the cosy hearth in the spacious old room which Ran had planted for just such family uses. Four people sitting round the fire in the average modern bedchamber would be a crowd, but here there was room enough for twenty. They sat round the fire, talking for the next hour, and almost forgot that Sir Alan was still an invalid, till the family doctor came in and reproved them severely all round, including the patients. "'I have said you were to sit up for an hour or so, and you have been up at least four hours,' he expostulated. "'The other three hours went under the head of or so,' replied Sir Alan." It was a vague expression on your part, which I took to have a liberal meaning. Don't be frightened, Danvers. I never felt better in my life, and I am going to eat one of these partridges which you have been pressing upon me as persistently as Louis the Fourteenth upon his confession. I am going to eat a partridge and drink a tumbler of Heidsack to my supper, as old-fashioned people say. 
"'Upon my soul, I believe you have been taking Heidsack already,' said the doctor, "'for you are as merry as a grig, and you have been all in the dolefuls till today.' "'The tide has turned,' said Sir Alan. "'You shall see how fast a man of forty-five can get well when he is surrounded by those he loves.' Before the end of November, Sir Alan was well enough to start for the south. The day before he left Darnell Park, he had a decisive interview with his half-sister, during which he made it clear to Dora Darnell that her place was no longer under the same roof that sheltered her brother's wife. "'I do not understand in what manner I have offended Lady Darnell,' said Dora, with an air of ill-used innocence. "'I have absolutely slaved in my desire that everything in this house should be as near perfection as possible. If Lady Darnell had any experience of a large establishment, she would be better able to appreciate the trouble I have taken in her behalf.' Lady Darnell is not unappreciative, Dora. She has a great admiration for your talents as a housekeeper, so great, in fact, that her ambition has been aroused by your example, and she would like, when we come back, to try her hand at housekeeping on her own account, so I shall be glad if you plan your future life while we are away. I am sure we shall all be excellent friends at a distance. Dora paled to the lips, and the hand that played with her watch-chain was faintly tremulous, but she maintained her dignity as she replied, I am deeply grateful to you for my release, Alan. Residence under Lady Darnell's roof has long been painful to me. My own wants are of the simplest. My poor little income will enable me to live in London, and in an intellectual atmosphere where I hope I shall not be misunderstood as I have been here. You must allow me to double your income, as I have always intended if we ever came to live apart, said Alan kindly. Dora protested against the idea, but there was that in her protestation which assured Sir Alan that she would not be inflexible. Clara and Grace both left Darnell with lighter hearts because of the knowledge that they would not find Miss Darnell installed there on their return. That pernicious influence would be taken out of their lives forever. "'I can never forget that it was Aunt Dora who sent me to school,' said Grace in her confidential talk with her stepmother while Sir Alan slept peacefully on the other side of the railway carriage which was taking them to Genoa. She was the only person who ever parted me from my father. "'But I believe there is one other person who has the same malicious intention, Grace,' answered Lady Darnell, smiling at her. "'If Mr. Colchester comes to spend Christmas at Venice with us, as he threatens, I fancy it will be with the hope of persuading you to exchange Darnell Park for the manor before long.' "'He is a most persistent young man,' said Grace, blushing. "'I hope it won't bore you to have him in Venice.' I shall be delighted to have him. He has always been my friend. He has never looked coldly upon me as other people have done at Darnall. I believe that coldness was mostly Aunt Dora's fault, said Grace, and she was right, for on Lady Darnall's return to her husband's house in the spring, and upon the announcement of Grace's engagement to Edward Colchester, people who had held themselves somewhat aloof before hastened to Darnall to offer their congratulations upon that pleasant event, and somehow, before the year was out, the neighbourhood began to understand that Lady Darnall was really a rather charming person, and that Sir Alan was altogether fortunate in his second marriage. Sir Alan's second wife received such tardy attentions somewhat coldly, and did not by any means fling herself into the newly opened arms of the neighbourhood. But Grace's marriage, which took place early in August, brought about festivities and visitings that necessarily drew Lady Darnell into county society. She stinted no splendours or hospitalities that beseemed the marriage of her husband's daughter and heiress with a man of wealth in the neighbourhood, and she bore herself at all these festivities with a quiet dignity which impressed even the doubters. Whatever she may have been in the past, she must always have been a lady, said that pleasant old lady Scattercash, who had lived every hour of her life in London and Paris, before she took to wearing poke bonnets and holding mother's meetings in Wiltshire. And that is the main point, after all. We don't want to pry into people's past lives, but we cannot receive ci-devant barmaids or ballet girls. Lady Darnell is so completely happy in her husband's love, and in the perfect confidence now established between them, that she can afford to be very indifferent to the opinions of the county. She has received cheering news from New Zealand, where Stuart Mackenzie has been behaving well and winning friends. End of chapter 14 End of Cut by the County, or Grace Darnell, by Mary Elizabeth Braddon